We had a debt of sin against us that we could never repay. And Jesus came and he hung upon that cross to pay our debt in full. That's who we are, you and I, if we belong to Christ. And for us to turn around and then withhold forgiveness to a brother or sister in Christ, it is inconsistent with who we are. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller. Glad you've joined us today as we continue taking a look at reconciliation and forgiveness. And Jonathan, are those two terms interchangeable? I mean, if we extend forgiveness to someone who has hurt us, does that mean that we have to reconcile with them too? Well, that's a good question. Are those two terms interchangeable? They are not interchangeable. They are not synonymous, but they are closely related terms. Uh, The Lord Jesus calls us to a very high standard of a willingness to forgive. We must, if we've understood the forgiveness we have received in Christ, we must be those who are willing to forgive and who will extend forgiveness without reservation. And that's a very hard thing to do. But the, the message of the cross calls us to do that. But, but having forgiven, we need also to pursue a, a relational reconciliation. We need, to, we need to work at making things right relationally. And wonderfully, the Lord Jesus sets out a pattern in his word to instruct us in, in, in how to go about doing that in the context of the local church. And, and we'll dig into that a little bit today in Matthew chapter 18. Well, let's go there. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 35 is where we are as we continue a message called The Kingdom of Reconciliation and Forgiveness. Here is Jonathan. What do we do if a brother or sister sins against us? First, we seek reconciliation. Second, if a brother or sister sins against you, says Jesus, extend forgiveness. Peter has a follow-on question from what Jesus has said so far about seeking reconciliation. Peter's, he's heard the importance of doing that. He presumably understands something of the procedure that Jesus has set out. And I guess he's wondering what happens if, after all that, the same brother or sister goes and does the same thing or goes and does something else, sins against you again. What, what then? You know, is it one strike you're out or two strikes you're out or three as the upper limit, as the rabbis said, actually, that was their upper limit. Could it be as many as seven, he asks. Verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, it is an understandable question, isn't it? We can, we can understand where he's coming from. Some people are repeat offenders. Some uh, behaviors are actually deeply ingrained patterns. Some people can engage in sinful cycles of deceitful or abusive behavior, and they hurt brothers and sisters in Christ again and again, hurt family members again and again. How many times do we forgive? How far does the practice extend? It's a very understandable question. Some among us have had to grapple with this question very, very deeply. To answer the question, Jesus draws a a parallel. He tells a story, a kind of parable, to show us how this kind of thing functions in the kingdom of heaven, among kingdom people. He invites us to imagine a situation, to picture a scene. A king in an imaginary kingdom decides that he wants to settle accounts with his various servants. Evidently, he had lent out money to lots of them, in some cases, very, very large amounts of money, and he wants to tidy up the books. His servants are brought in one by one. We imagine the king sitting at a great table in a great hall. A servant is brought in who looks decidedly anxious, fearful. He's pale, shaky. 
he owes 10,000 talents. This is a massive debt. The biggest number anyone could think of. In today's money, this would not be thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions. This would be billions of dollars. It's an unfathomable debt. He can't pay. Obviously not. He doesn't have the money. He's never going to have the money. His line of credit is fully tapped. The house is mortgaged to the hilt more than it's worth. There is nothing left to sell. And so the, the king orders for him and his wife and children to be sold into slavery. All his possessions are auctioned off to clear up as much of the debt as possible. But it'll be a drop in the bucket. The servant, he does the only thing he can do. Verse 26, he falls to his knees. And he implores the master, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. It's not very realistic, but he's desperate. And in a, a stunning turn of events, a wonderful turn of events, a heartwarming and life-transforming turn of events, verse 27, the master has pity on that servant and he forgives him the debt. I mean, just imagine it. Just imagine it. You're in debt. Huge investments have gone very, very wrong. You, you were very leveraged. You're overextended. Interest rates have gone up rapidly. Imagine that. Perhaps you've lost your job. The bank has called you up. They've dragged you in. They're calling in the loan, and it is a very, very big loan. They, uh, they want the keys to the house. They're taking the car. It, it's bankruptcy, absolutely no question. It's a matter now of going home and telling the family to pack. We're moving to a motel. There's nowhere else to go. There's no money. The credit cards are being canceled as we speak. It's totally bleak. And, and you do the only thing you can think of with the, with the gas that's remaining in the car. You drive downtown to the bank's headquarters. You, 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 you make your way into the office of the CEO. You don't wait to ask for permission. You just walk in. You get down on your knees and you beg. And, and you, you explain the situation. The tears in your eyes. And he listens. And he says to you, my heart, my heart goes out to you. I've got family at home too. I tell you what we're going to do. We're writing off the mortgage. We're, we're forgiving the, the loan. As of this moment, you are debt-free. Just go home to your family. Now, it's unprecedented. It's virtually unbelievable. It is grace upon grace. It is extraordinary grace. This man's life is instantaneously transformed by the kindness of the king. And what, is, what does he do now? What does he do? He walks out of the king's presence. He is a free man. He is a new man. He is liberated. He has been given back his future. He has been gifted with hope. And as, as he's walking out just on cloud nine, he stumbles upon another servant, a fellow servant who owes him a small debt, a hundred denarii, a few thousand bucks in today's money. It's a few weeks wages for a, a, a laborer. Well, so, okay, now how does the story go? We're eager to see. Moved by the kindness of the king, he forgives the debt of his fellows. Oh, no. That's not what happens next. You might think so, but no. Verse 29, he grabs this servant by the neck. He begins choking him, spitting out words between gritted, angry teeth. He says, pay me what you owe. This fellow servant now does what this other man himself did before the king. He gets down on his knees and pleads with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Okay, well, what will this recipient of mercy do when faced with such a request? What's he going to do? Verse 30, here's what he, he does. He refuses point blank. 
And he has the man thrown in prison until he should pay every last penny. That's what he does. Word gets round about what's happened. The reports reach the king, and, and he is unimpressed, to say the least, by the hypocrisy of this man. Verse 32, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And so comes the sobering conclusion to the matter, verse 34, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. As Peter asked the question of Jesus, he figured his offer of seven times forgiveness was more than generous. But Jesus tells the story to illustrate the most fundamental point. As Christians, we are a people who have been shown extraordinary, unfathomable mercy. We have been forgiven a debt that we could never, ever repay. And it is simply inconsistent now with who we are as recipients of such mercy to be unforgiving toward our brothers and our sisters in Christ. The number of times is not the point. The extent of the sin is not the point. The point is actually who we are. The point is what we have ourselves received. And God expects of us, he actually demands of us that we forgive and we forgive and we forgive. Not because our brothers and sisters have earned it or deserve it or because they've shown the appropriate attitude of heart or they've turned themselves around, not because of that at all, not because of them at all, but because of our Father who has forgiven us so much and done so so freely in Christ. Remember who we are. We had a debt of sin against us that we could never repay, a debt that would not simply send us to insolvency court or to jail, but to hell itself. And Jesus came and he hung upon that cross to pay our debt in full. That's who we are, you and I, if we belong to Christ. And for us to turn around and then withhold forgiveness to a brother or sister in Christ, it is inconsistent with who we are. And because of this, there is a basic attitude of heart in the believer that forgives by default, that re just refuses to hold things in anger and bitterness. In Mark chapter 11 and verse 25, Jesus says to us, he says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. It's the same dynamic we see in the Lord's Prayer. Back in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12, we pray, don't we? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It is just expected and indeed assumed that the believer releases these things and comes to the Lord not holding bitterness and grudges in his or her heart. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called The Kingdom of Reconciliation and Forgiveness, part of our series In the Presence of the King. Well, Encounter the Truth is listener-supported. We're able to be on this station because of your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to send you, as our way of saying thanks, a copy of Jonathan's brand new book called God Alone. It's about God's unique attributes and how knowing them changes us. 
you know, we live in such a me-focused world, one that encourages us to really pamper ourselves, focus on our wants, our desires, our needs. But when we turn our life just inward and are not focused on God, that brings peril and confusion. When we don't know God properly, we become selfish and hopeless. But a renewed understanding of who God is changes all that. And that's what Jonathan's addressing in his book, God Alone. Again, we'd love to send you a copy as our way of saying thank you for your financial support. Find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 833-998-7884 or EncounterTheTruth.org. Back to the message. Here is Jonathan. It is just expected and indeed assumed that the believer releases these things and comes to the Lord not holding bitterness and grudges in his or her heart. Now we might say, well, that's, I see that, that's fine and good if the other person is, is repentant, but, but you, you have to understand I'm dealing with someone who doesn't seem repentant at all. You know, maybe they weren't at all willing to go through the procedure of reconciliation. Maybe they've done the same old thing again and again and again. Maybe they've never really acknowledged their sin against me, never properly apologized. What about that situation? Or, you know, maybe the person has died, passed away, and, and all the opportunity now to address things, it's gone. What, what happens there? Is forgiveness even possible? Am I at liberty to withhold that forgiveness? Well, these are very, very hard questions, aren't they? And for some, they will be deeply personal, profoundly painful questions. I know that. As we grapple with this, I think it's helpful to consider that in Scripture, forgiveness really will have two aspects to it, two stages, if you like. One aspect is, is inward, what takes place first within my heart and within my attitude toward another person. It's about my, my disposition. And, and I think Jesus is speaking very powerfully to that here, as he does in Mark 11, as he does in the Lord's Prayer. The second aspect of forgiveness is concretely relational. What will be the outcome of things between us? As I extend forgiveness from my heart, and as it is received, there, there is we trust reconciliation and some way to move forward in relationship. Now, I cannot control, I can contribute to, but I cannot control the second part of forgiveness. The other person needs to acknowledge the wrong and receive the forgiveness that I have extended and be willing to move forward in relationship. That may or may not happen. And there is a sense in which forgiveness is, is incomplete in some way until it is received, with that acknowledgement of wrong. But I think Jesus is addressing our fundamental disposition here, our attitude of heart, our willingness just to release the debt, to release the bitterness, to release the anger. Remember that this is important. Remember the headline question here from Peter in verse 21. His headline question is, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? His headline question that prompts this whole thing is not, how often will my brother sin against me and come to me with sorrow and with concrete signs of repentance in his life, asking for my forgiveness very politely? That is not the headline question that prompts Jesus to tell the story. No, it's how often will he sin and I forgive? And Jesus is saying that our attitude of heart in this, our extension of forgiveness, needs to be shaped in a profound way by the mercy we have received in the presence of the Master as we met with Him. 
Now, this is, of course, a very, very hard thing. There are situations where the very thought of this kind of repentance from the heart seems almost impossible because the hurt has been so very, very deep. But I think here Jesus is calling us to an attitude of heart that approaches every situation from the perspective of the mercy that we have received. And because we have been in the Master's presence and have been forgiven that debt through the gospel, we say to the Lord, I'm, I'm releasing this. Not, not because I feel it's all been dealt with tidily or because I feel this person has made things right. Not because my view of the seriousness of the sin or my pain or my hurt is any smaller than it was. I release this simply and purely because you have shown me a mercy I could never earn or deserve and I have no right to hold on to this thing. I, I release it because you are the judge and I'm not the judge. I release it because I trust you and I leave this with you to deal with it in perfect righteousness and in perfect justice and in perfect mercy. Before you, Lord, I, I forgive him. I forgive her from my heart. Now, saying this doesn't mean that we don't think there should be no consequences of any kind for this sin. I mean, perhaps a crime has been committed. I mean, think of that. And we could conceivably say, I forgive you, and I think you should spend the rest of your life in prison. In fact, for the good of society, I hope you spend the rest of your life in prison. That is entirely conceivable. Or, I, I forgive you in my heart, I release the bitterness and anger, it's not mine to hold, and at the same time, I believe with all my heart that church discipline should be exercised here. I think your behavior is dangerous and destructive for the body. That's entirely possible too. But it is so important for us that we exercise this forgiveness of heart, this readiness, this willingness, this release, even in cases where we can't achieve full relational reconciliation. It's, it's so important because ultimately our own spiritual well-being is at stake. I mean, notice the warning of the Lord Jesus here. It's so strong. Just as the master punished the servant who would not show mercy, verse 34, so will the father treat those, verse 35, who will not forgive their brother. Why is this so? Well, an unforgiving spirit is a sign that forgiveness has not been received and experienced and understood. And for the unforgiven and unforgiving person, that person will find that they meet an unforgiving God in the end. Now, for some here, this just seems impossible. And maybe for you, it may be that the first thing you need to do is actually to receive the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus yourself, because you've never done that. And, and the beginning of this road to forgiveness and to healing is actually to come to him with all your guilt and to receive the forgiveness that he promises to all who believe. That's your need today. It may be the need of a number here. And that's the first step. We'd love to help you take that first step. But for those grappling with this call to forgive, let me just say this. If you will, with the Lord's help, forgive in your heart the person you feel unable to forgive, you have been unable to forgive so far. If you will, by the strength that God alone can give, release the grudge and the anger 
and the bitterness, release it to the Lord, whatever may or may not be possible in terms of relational reconciliation, if, you're, if for your part you release it to the Lord, if you will forgive in your heart, let me say this to you, this really will have the power to change your life. It really will. That is no exaggeration. That is no overstatement. So many of our deep emotional and spiritual problems find their root in an unwillingness to forgive. That is, just, that is just true on so many levels. And the power of forgiveness for our own personal healing is just immense. I've, I've seen the power of this before now, even where the opportunity for reconciliation is long past, years past. I, I have seen the change that this can bring about in a person where a deep, deep hurt is given over to the Lord in a spirit of forgiveness and the freedom the joy, the peace, the total transformation of life that comes. It is quite remarkable. It is so freeing, so true to who we are as believers, so consistent with the gospel. Yes, it is so hard as well. Let's not minimize that or pretend it's not hard. It may well seem completely impossible from where you're sitting today. But the basic reality of the Christian life, we know this, the basic reality of the Christian life is that the Lord helps us by His Spirit to do things that we could never do on our own. That's who He is. So let me ask you, what is it that you're holding on to today? As I worked through this this week, as I prepared this, I had to stop and search my own heart and ask, is there anything there, anything I'm holding on to? We can't read this and not do that. So let me, let me urge you, search your heart. Is there something there? And I suspect for many, there will be. Let me encourage you by his grace, forgive as you have been forgiven. What do we do when a brother or a sister sins against us as they will and as we will sin against others too? What do we do? We seek reconciliation. We extend forgiveness. Friends, what is it that you need to address? What must be your response today? May the Lord help us and give us grace by His Spirit. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth, wrapping up the message, The Kingdom of Reconciliation and Forgiveness. Well, if you missed any of the broadcasts in our series called In the Presence of the King, come and listen online. Our website is EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, we're able to bring you Jonathan's teaching on this station each day because of your generosity. We are listener-supported, and as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you Jonathan's new book. It's called God Alone, His Unique Attributes, and How Knowing Them Changes Us. So there's a question built into that title right there, Jonathan. How does knowing God's attributes change us? Well, knowing God as He has made Himself known in Scripture is really the greatest need of the human heart. We were made for relationship with God. We were made in His image, and we were made for His glory. And if we live life without reference to Him and without knowing Him, our lives are profoundly empty, and we are without direction. But of course, learning who God is and what He is like, learning who He is in Himself, that has profound effects for the practicalities of our lives, because if we shape our lives and the priorities of our lives around Him, 
then we will find that we are living for something beyond ourselves. We are living for his glory and his honor. We are living in trust of him. We learn what true faith is because we have faith in the God who is all-powerful and all-knowing, the God who is eternal, the God who is truly glorious. So if we are to live rightly in this world and if we are to live properly as disciples of Jesus Christ, as worshipers of God, we've, we've got to know who God is. And that's what this book is all about. Well, we would love to send you a copy of this book as our way of saying thank you for supporting this ministry financially. You can give a gift right now by going to our website, EncounterTheTruth.org, or call us at 833-998-7884. That might be easier to remember as 833-99-TRUTH, or again, our website is EncounterTheTruth.org. For Jonathan Griffiths, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.